crowd cheers, murmur level from one through 10. And then they had through one through 10, (laughs) like a matrix with a a pad where they could trigger the different crowd uh, noise. uh, (sighs) So you like sort of raise the level (laughs) and then highlight things. Hello and welcome to How Now. On today's episode, we get to chat to Paul Bauman. Paul's been involved for 30 plus years in the professional audio and globe touring industry, holding key positions at leading international concert sound rental firms and respected loudspeaker system manufacturers. He started off his sound career in Hamilton, Ontario, with a BSc in physics at McMaster University. After completing a master's at U of Waterloo, he moved over to Europe and at the University of Technology in Sweden, then working in the field and living in Paris, and then Maryland as he was drawn back and forth between Europe and the States, with the States winning him in the end. The irony of a rookie audio podcaster wading into sound production to present to you the works and words of a great sound guy is not lost on me. Over to Paul Bauman now, talking to us from his Los Angeles home. Hey Paul, welcome. Yeah, hi Vaughn. So tell us about your early days and how did you get involved in sound? At the time, graduating with a degree in physics, we didn't feel very hireable. So we, we said, what do we do now? And he <laughs> said, well, what you've learned is how to think and problem solve and reason. And, uh, you know, you may not know everything about every detail, but you, you know where to go and look and, and how to understand once you get there. And that, that was encouraging, but my takeaway was I needed to specialize and do a master's. <laughs> But yeah, going back to 83, coming out of Mac, it was like when I said, okay, I need to specialize. I said, well, I might as well do something that I enjoy. And, uh, you know, I liked music a lot and I was into stereo equipment and a bit of a gearhead. So I thought, and I came across this lab at University of Waterloo studying um, loudspeaker measurements and uh, was right. 83 is when Compact Disc came out. So digital audio was a thing. And uh, these guys were into recording and that this philosophy prof actually built an extension on his house with perfect acoustics for chamber music. So we borrow the digital audio recording stuff on the weekends from the professors from the lab, and I'd go record punk bands uh, instead. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of how it got started. And and Tim introduced me to Mike and uh, Dick Van Dyke guys and yeah, and then you recorded. So you recorded the one at the Gown and Gavel. Is that the one? Yeah, yeah. We did yeah. The gavel, and then uh, you know, first record. You know, that's the one Mike doesn't have. He doesn't have a copy of that recording at all. But no. I do. I still have no. my ropey old cassette. Yeah, that cassette is a collector's item now. I think you get fifty bucks for it. Yeah, yeah. We should remaster it and put it out on. Yeah, there's an idea. So. Yeah, and you ended up with the as the bass player for the Dick Van Dykes. Yeah, that was kind like of totally. Fun. I mean, that was that was a joke, you know. Frank kept threatening to quit. You know, I was trying to stay out of it, and after a while, I just you know when I, when it came up, I just I let him quit. I'll figure out how to play. And <laughs> I was just joking. And Mike came back to me uh, months later, and he says, "Well, I finally called his bluff. You got a month to learn how to play." <laughs> <laughs> what do I do? And he said, well, do what I do. Learn how to play play every Ramon song and then learn how to play ours. And uh, that's what I did. It wasn't pretty. (laughs) Well, and you still know how to play it all these years later, which is pretty amazing. But I mean... I've still got a couple hanging here in the the garage, my lab here. It's astounding. I mean, looking at your career, it's astonishing. Sound at live events can just be, it can run the gamut. I mean, it's everything from the U.S. Open tennis tournament, all-star games, um, San Diego Symphony Pops, Lincoln Park, Metallica, Bob Dylan, Europe, which is of Eastwick, Mamma Mia. It's it's just everything. Like this This is an industry that has been dealt 
a significant blow. Oh, and absolutely. it's everything we it's everything we do for entertainment, really. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I was initially thinking of it just, you know, as a live music issue, but it's live events is just colossal. Well, yeah. And it's, it's, there's a lot of, it's not just the musicians and the venues, but there's a lot of technicians and behind the scenes and a lot of people out of work. It's, you know, like they say, it was first to close and be the last to to reopen. And uh, some pretty scary uh, statistics, you know, looking at um, this organization here in the States uh, and NEVA and National Independent Venue Association, they've been trying to sponsor this restart program. And they're estimating that 90% of Indie venues will close permanent if there's no relief within six months. That's that's the that's a similar story across the world. Uh, we just interviewed um, Sean from the Canadian Independent Venue Coalition, and mm-hmm. yeah. uh, unfortunately, Garrison. Unfortunately, we're kind of under threat in Canada and and probably in the UK as well. I think. Yep. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. It's a global phenomenon for sure. The just as the pandemic is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. um, like there's initiatives going here as well. I I appreciate you sending me links to the the US one. I'm gonna make recommendations to the Canadian guys of things they can borrow. But it's just a, it's it's so sad to see a whole industry being you know having to go cap in hand. So has there been any relief for for the industry in the states? Not specifically, other than uh, some of the PPP programs. I think. They sort of loosen some of the the unemployment insurance guidelines so that independents could could get some some uh, pogey. <laughs> yeah, but it's just individual employees rather than the, the there's no kind of because the same thing is happening here. Although we hit, we heard from from Sean when we were interviewing him that there was a heritage ministry mm-hmm. grant initially of twenty three million, which kept a bunch of businesses afloat across the country, but right. it's obviously running out now. But yeah, um, yeah you got a whole bunch of other factors as well in the states with healthcare being so tied to employment right that you when you mm-hmm. lose employment you, in a pandemic you lose everything yeah. do, i'm just going to take you back a little bit and ask how did it impact like was it immediate did everything have to shut down right away or was there kind of a gradual dawning of this virus? it was pretty abrupt i mean i remember working with firehouse productions we have office in las vegas and it was like middle of March and we were in Vegas doing some work at the shop and some experiments. And you could just read the headlines and see the casinos and hotels emptying out. And it was just turning into a ghost town. And then it was just like, you know, a light switch being thrown, <laughs> thrown off from one week to the next. And, uh, you know, Firehouse um, this is a sound company, a rental company where they, you know, a lot of people, just to back up, they think that the bands own their own equipment and they go when they go on tour, but they're actually hiring sound companies and lighting companies and video companies with equipment and technicians and that. So so Firehouse basically went to halftime, you know, for the first couple of months. And a lot of people were we were working uh, remotely and uh, looking into things like, well, if things do restart, what do we need to do to uh, sanitize equipment? And, you know, what, what kind of uh, safety protocols could we come up with uh, yeah. during downtime and not just doing equipment service, but, you know, working on infrastructure. And yeah. I did my webinar training sessions for, for the other guys on staff. And that was a month and a half, two months, but um, eventually it was just sort of not sustainable for 
for anyone really and, and most sound companies have sort of indefinitely furloughed their staffs and um, you know people are just doing what they can uh, to, to sort of make ends meet I think uh, yeah this is um, you know there isn't as big a safety net in the states some you know, unemployment insurance and then they had that uh, stimulus on top of it till the end of July but now that that's run out it's uh, it's not pretty. No, it hasn't been uh, pretty up here either. Although you're right, it's, it seems like it's there's been a bit more of a cushion, but they're threatening for that to just end. Now it's sort of like if you didn't pay in, you're, you're getting a little dribble, but you're probably not yeah. getting mm-hmm. enough to make ends meet, as you say. Yeah. So we've got a similar kind of dire need. And it's like you said, it's all the related industries as well. I mean, Matt right. can ask to this because he's used to dealing with with the artists because he does a lot of promotion for artists. So when there's no, you know, these days you don't make any money as a musician from recording music, right? Because it's all just yeah. buttons. Not, a, not unless you're a, a pretty sizable artist, I'd say. Yeah, right. but on the steps and stairs on the way, now the only mm-hmm. way to make your money is from merch and from performing, which usually go together. So if you haven't got the venues yeah. to support the small artists, this is what Sean was talking about. If you haven't got those entry level, those 50 capacity places and those right. 200 capacity places, you haven't got any feeding into the giant mega stages right. where you know, you're Beyonce and you're... It's the farm league or whatever, you know, this mm-hmm. is you know, what we used to play with the Dick Van Dykes is all the, the club circuit and that. And if that just goes away, you know, it's yeah. going to take years to, to rebuild if, if, if at all, you know. So. Right, right. Exactly. You mentioned working from home and doing some consulting for a manufacturer, working on roadmaps and prototyping new loudspeaker designs. Did those kinds of things, those alternative consultation and prototyping gigs take some finding or did you have them on the back burner and it was just like a chance to get to focus on? Mm. It was kind of a, a back burner thing <laughs> in a way, this sort of pushed me out the door into consulting uh, by, you know, by default, by necessity. It's something I'd sort of toyed with for, for years and, you know, versus taking on a permanent bot somewhere. And I've I'd sort of been nudging in this direction uh, up to, gosh, even three, four years ago, I, I had that in the back of my head. What was kind of holding me back was, you know, being in, in Paris for eight years, it's almost like I was in jail or something, you come back to North America and no one, no one knows who you are. <laughs> so I had the network that uh, yeah. I didn't feel I so hear you on that one. Mm-hmm. I was away in, in the UK for 12 years and it was as if, you know, that was Mars. Well, don't you have any Canadian mm-hmm. experience? Like, yeah. Just didn't. It's, it's yeah. as if people want the benefits of globalization, but not, you know, they don't want to accept people from other parts of the world it's kind of yeah, yeah it's like a- anywhere else ism now that we kind of have like seven months or so with this pandemic do you see anything that's kind of intrigued you uh in your community like in ways that people have adapted i'm just trying to think of some specific examples it's uh, people have been sort of embracing the the live streaming sort of Mm-hmm. stopgap and and there is a need for sort of technical support on on those sorts of activities to do a professional sort of presentation for the artist it's so there there are some interesting things drive-in concerts okay that's you know people are just trying to come up with something they're, they're grasping it creative to, to bridge the the gap 
But uh, do you see any kind of like combination maybe with live performance when it does come back, where perhaps there's like a need to have like a mini TV studio within like, like the guy at the garrison, Sean Bowering is doing to incorporate some kind of video element or dial in for people who don't still don't feel comfortable attending in person. Oh, yeah. I mean, with the sort of technology, the way mm-hmm. people can sort of stream concerts and, you know, really get a feel that that you are there sort of impression it could be a new frontier and the sorts of immersive audio uh systems that i mean people are stuck at home they're upgrading their their home theater systems and heading towards you know a more of an immersive audio in the home setting which could could tie in with that potentially in the future but but then you're assuming people have disposable income (laughs) to to buy True. Yeah, that is true. Don't necessarily have either. So no, that's kicking a lot of people in the teeth. This week's track comes to us from Hamilton Psych Pop outfit, The Crowleys. It's entitled "Girl What."
was the Crowleys with their track Girl What. If you like what you hear, check out their fresh new single Slowly that came out this week. Please support musicians and those who power live events in this disastrous time. Check out the show notes for ways to get involved with Support Canadian Venues and Save Live Events Now as we work towards getting the show back on the road. Back to the How Now interview with Paul. Tell us some more about how you got involved. I guess it was through Firehouse that you got involved with the NBA. Yeah, that was kind of a, I don't know if it just sort of appeared out of nowhere. I mean, I'm Firehouse NBA have a long working relationship and I was fortunate to be part of the All-Star game in Chicago back in gosh January seems like a lifetime ago <laughs> and it was just yeah, it, does. it was just fun to be uh, you know a part of that project so when this came up in uh, July the fact that they were going to do this um, NBA season restart this quarantine bubble in Orlando at first I was like hmm NBA really good organization really got their their stuff together if 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 it really is a quarantine what the way they're describing this sounds mm-hmm. like a pretty interesting project it'd be uh, pretty cool to be I, part of. I honestly was a bit skeptical going into it i'm a big uh nba fan and mm. um, the chatter around town was kind of like oh this is never gonna work like mm. there's gonna be cases people are gonna leave you know go get late yeah. night food or something like that and then and then bring it back outside of like those 22 teams. Do you, do you think that it worked? And do you think that, do you think that it can be replicated again this season? Or what do you, what do you think that looks like? Yeah, they're, they're really uh, toying with, you know, what do they try to run a regular sort of season in the new year? And I've been sort of reading about it here and there. I think this was pretty hard on players. This, this was a very long, for them a lot of them are saying never again yeah mental health for sure yep i mean i was only there for 14 days for the initial setup so i kind of got off easy and and the rest of my colleagues we were were about 35 people on the uh the event for the load-in and then maybe a dozen or so left after the load-in the other people stayed all the way through and they were oh, wow. pretty, yeah. pretty ragged by the end of it. Yeah, I bet. But they had, you know, three three venues and two games per day. And they had so four five-man crews that would rotate through the venues. And one crew would get a day off. And, and that was sort of how they, they worked it. You know, after a while, you just sort of get used to wearing a mask and getting tested every day. And it's just, you know, you feel sort of pretty comfortable because, you know, everybody you're working with has, you know, been tested. And, and there's not really any any leaks in the, in the bubble. I guess, I guess some of that like star power kind of wears off as well after uh, being in close proximity to a lot of these players. And Right. Yeah. Um, kind of in the same <laughs> boat. Yeah. <laughs> do you, yeah, do you know how many people total were in the bubble at the peak? At the peak, I want to say 1,200 people or something like that, maybe more. Wow. Might be, be underestimating it. You think you have 20, uh, okay, like 15 players plus staff would probably be 25. And then Maybe I'm underestimating because there's also a fair bit of media doing, doing yep. the coverage. There were some family members. I mean, there was sort of small audience areas in the venues, but most of it, I think at first was uh, other teams would come and watch <laughs> the other teams. Yep play each other and some some family members maybe more towards the end of uh i think they let they let them in the uh after after the playoffs began and the second round began so that yeah it was kind of interesting i i thought it was completely gonna fail (laughs) Mm. 
<laughs> and, but as a fan, I was like rooting for it because I want to see basketball. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I remember yeah. the atmospheric uh, engineers. That's what we called them. They would they would do all the the crowd noises and and stuff. And that was part of the sound design was mm. you know covering the, uh, the the basketball court to make the players feel they're in a bigger space, right? Full capacity crowd, and just to sort of you know make them feel more comfortable. And yeah, I wanted to. I, I kind of wanted to ask about so the NBA they. And maybe you were part of setting this up, but they had uh, tried out a bunch of different things that they've never, they've always wanted to try, but never have really tried, including fully miking the courts. So you would pick right. up every bounce, every uh, movement, and yep. you know they ended up muting a lot of it because of the uh, profanity and you know <laughs> shit talking. <laughs> that's right. Um, well, that's why they had so many contact mics on the floor for yep. the, the sneakers and the ball bouncing. You don't get the the, the, the profanity coming through yeah. the content. <laughs> yeah. Did you, did you set up the, uh, the digital fan experience that was surrounding? No, that was, a, that was a whole other team doing the, the video. We were, we were strictly loudspeakers. And I mean, if, if you think about basketball court, it's like, you know, behind the backboards, there's two arrays of speakers covering the whole court. And then on each corner, there's four arrays. And then on the sides, there's two high arrays on each side. So, you add that up, that's 10, 10 point sound system. And then there's subwoofers on six of those points on the floor. So it was like a huge 10.1 surround sound type mm -hmm. system. And when I set it up, it was, um, I sort of panned it like, like a club, like a massive club system where the, the home side was left and the away side was right. <laughs> you turn it on, it was just like, man. Like, it's, it's like Scott Pilgrim, if you've ever seen that movie. Yeah, it almost blew my throat. <laughs> <laughs> and it sounded amazing but then uh mark ditmar the sort of sound designer with firehouse for this whole project he says okay that was his mandate first make it sound good then screw it up so they think they're in a, a bigger place so we did some things with time delays and and uh level changes and but then it was mostly the content itself they had uh interesting crowd, crowd cheers murmur level from one through ten and then they had so okay. Through one through ten, so like a matrix with a, a pad where they could trigger the different uh, crowd noise. Had to go. <sighs> so you like sort of raise the level and then you could highlight Very things. Interesting. So we had two yeah. operators who were following the game, but anything like you know seriously controversial, like a like a serious boo or a cheer, would be kind of triggered by an M NBA representative saying, okay, we, we want to cheer okay. up. They're the home team or what have you. So they're very conscious not to try to influence the game in any way. Add I'm really curious. I'm, I'm curious if move forward, they're going to have like another tier, maybe it's a paid tier that you can access the unbridled experience. Yeah, I, I would be interested in that. I mean, yeah. You know, going by the NHL, they were they were doing a lot more of the uh, on ice sort of now noise was mixed a lot hotter, and I I thought it added. Mm -hmm. a lot to that. I I think so too. Like I I'm not afraid of a a curse word here or there. It's not gonna. I think the sh the oh, shit talk is kind of part right? of the experience. But yeah. Um, yeah. If you were if you were a, a betting man, is there anything that you think this pandemic will affect long term for particularly large scale events? Because we've we've kind of walk through small scale uh, events, but how is, how is it going to affect the large scale? Well, I mean, the general consensus is until there's a vaccine, live, live, large scale events really aren't going to happen until 
until that happens and it's been effectively sort of distributed and the herd immunity comes up. So, you know, we're, we're sort of predicting that March next year, we'll start seeing slowly maybe some tour production rehearsals, some small scale, medium scale touring, but stadiums full of people for either sports events or concerts. Yeah. It's really going to take that kind of a, a vaccine or else rapid testing might be a solution as well. I was talking to someone the other day, said, why can't they have a, a thing? You go to, go to the arena, you walk up, you blow in something, you get a red light or a green light. And if you get the red light, they sort of escort you away. And we, then some UVC thing comes and scans it or cleans it, sanitizes it for the next people. We need that. We so definitely we'll, need that. And we need rapid testing, I think, yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Rapid testing is the, is the way through. Because, I mean, until until we get effective treatments or vaccines, yeah. at least we yeah. know we can do that. And, you know, mm-hmm. we... You could have already been there. I mean, the, these events could have already been happening if, if somebody had yeah. got off their arse and actually done something. It's Basically. just it's staggering to think That's how many there. people have died down there. It's just it's yeah. absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah, well, needless uh, as well. But yeah. uh, at this point, we just got to get through it and get out of yeah. it. And, I mean, another aspect is insurance companies that are underwriting tours. There's so many unknowns. No one would possibly underwrite a tool right now. So there's even legal aspects to consider as well as logistical. Same's happening stuff. in venues. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a good uh, organization called the Event Safety Alliance. They've done a lot of good work on, you know, what are the right protocols to safely reopen from a, a production standpoint. So the Event Safety Alliance. Alliance, yeah. You yeah. should. I could send you that link. And just getting back to some of the other aid initiatives, is Live Nation has, has founded this thing called Crew Nation, which is specifically dedicated to uh, helping out you know, touring production crew. Made a, right. a $10 million donation to seed it, and they've been sort of canvassing to try and uh, help touring production people. So that's that's a nice nice thing yeah. that they've and then there's the Save Live events that we touched on earlier. Yeah, Save Our Stages, which is uh, NEVA, National Independent Venue Association. And I guess NAM as well is doing stuff on to help with the restart initiative. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting to see all the, the major players, whether it's Live Nation or Universal, Sony, Warner. Like uh, I think it's Sony that's going public. Warner's already public. Live Nation's sold a big chunk to Saudi the Saudi government. Yeah, it's just I, I think even the the big players are are trying to adapt, and they're probably seeing this as as a time to more accumulate than the the small guys. Yeah, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, I think. One of the good news, though, is some of the uh, smaller sound companies, they have diversified their activities. So they're not just doing touring and events, but a lot of them have like an install division doing some fixed installations in what have you. could be, uh, you know, a lecture hall or a church or anything and everything. You know, some of them are larger venues and, and some of them are smaller, more like corporate industrial type things. So, you know, that I think has helped keep some people working for a little bit. But we're sort of seeing the pipeline drying up on on that as well, though, as mm. of, uh, installation projects are restarted and fulfilled. There's nothing sort of coming up to fill the pipeline. Uh, right. Mine, so. Do you think people are just pulling back uh, as this prolongs or, or what? what's the reason for that, do you think? 
I think they're they're honoring their initial commitments and finishing projects that were already started, but they're not sort of starting new new ones because of the uncertainty and you know the whole yeah. whole mm. economy and uh, and you don't want to be on the hook for it if if the client ends up not being able to pay right. you at the day. And I mean that just spills through all the way from you know the sound companies with all the lost revenue that you know it's not just the personnel but it's the, the revenue loss you know going mm. from a hundred percent down to maybe yeah, five wild they're not going to and well, you're going to see a lot of sound companies unfortunately probably won't make it through so you see a lot of used equipment on the market i would imagine fairly yeah. soon within the next six eight months there'll be uh a lot of uh, auctions and a lot of used gear on the on the on the market, and that means um, the companies that do survive when they do start restarting, they're going want going to want to use their existing inventory to recapture lost revenue, and then mm-hmm. that's going to filter through to all the manufacturers who are trying to sell new equipment to these sound companies. The fact that you know they're going to need no buyers. three years plus to recover their lost revenue, plus there's all this used gear on the market, so. You know, yeah. This, mm-hmm. this so the impacts continue. Effect. Yeah, it compounds on itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was. That's why I was so curious about what the NBA was able to pull off. I, I think it, mm. and they were successful. I know they're a great organization from top down, but I was just wondering if that experience um, and what the NBA was able to pull off. If you think there's any takeaways. Well, I just I think that the main takeaway there is just the importance of testing and uh, you know personal discipline. <laughs> you know, people you get used to being in that sort of uh, a situation, and whether you've got like a green zone and a yellow zone, and you you can go in certain areas and you can't go in others. And, mm-hmm. But it's, it's it's more the um, the value in testing and tracing and uh, mm-hmm. and just yeah personal discipline. It's just sort of accepting the yeah. fact that hey, I got to wear a mask after a while. It's you know, some days yeah, I'd go to my hotel room and I'd still have the, the mask on. I'd forget, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> <Get off. laughs> well, hopefully there'll be ways for, for the industry to be able to adapt and survive because it's, it's mm-hmm. a really scary prospect having you yeah. know, good, a good portion of it be threatened mm-hmm. like this. I'm just hoping there'll be some kind of bailout that, you know, can maybe come in the nick of time. Do you think there's any kind of a timeline where a solution has to come in, like where the funding has to, because obviously we're, we're hopeful that January will make a change. Can people continue till about March when you were saying that there might be some signs of? I don't know. I was just, I saw um, a sort of colleague on, on LinkedIn the other day. Uh, he was just, he was saying, you know, he's a production manager in the touring industry. And he said, I've been hanging on as long as I can, but, uh, you know, finally I've had to you know, seek employment outside the industry. And then as of next week, I'm on a mail carrier and uh, that's my new career. And I think we're going to lose a lot of people to, uh, mm-hmm. to uh, there's good. Yeah. They're just going to have to go earn money elsewhere just to, just to survive, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm, I'm very lucky to have partnered up with a, a company that can sort of take a longer term view and have this sort of consulting opportunity where they see, okay, it's going to take three, four years for the industry to re- recover for those, those reasons I was just saying. Companies need to work with their inventory to recover investment. There'll be a lot of used gear out there, but in four or five years, if you do have something new, now's the time to start working on it. So mm-hmm. if you can have that longer term view, then you can sort of plan accordingly, but it takes yeah. resources and patience and uh, a longer term 
game plan to, to pull that off. Well, but this, this other project that I was working on, though, that to me, it, it sort of was a very successful prototype. And I'm thinking, well, maybe I could spin that off into a startup uh, company. You know, maybe, I mean, it could yeah. potentially be a product. It could be... Um, Know, the start of something else so you know i'm trying to keep that on the back burner as well well cheers so much it's it's been really great to chat to you paul about the impacts of this yeah. pandemic on the on the live yes, thanks, event industry right. thanks so, yeah thanks so much for joining us years, but we're just going to keep uh keep optimistic and, and and hang in there and, and hope for better days and yeah and, go well, see shows. and it, it's ironic i always thought that you know if there's anything that's recession proof it's you know, being in the entertainment field, everyone wants to go see a concert, no matter how bad things are, to cheer themselves up. That do, being a barber, you always need to get your hair cut, and then both things were <laughs> shut down. We're done, yeah. But you know, the live events—they—they they are such a, a a you know lifeblood of a culture, and I think you're right. People will still want to do it once it's safe. It's just riding out that time and got to find some way to bridge the gaps with some kind of support. But and we'll do um, everything we can to try and help advocate for those initiatives because it's so important, you know. And it's it's funny you you miss these things. You more like as a music fan, you know, you 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 miss that side of your life. But it's not until you start really digging in and thinking about it that you realize just how many people that have been impacted by that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's musicians, venues. And don't forget about technicians. Yeah, don't forget your sound guys. (laughs) That's right. And that's it for today's episode. If you'd like to get more information about Paul or anything mentioned in this podcast, subscribe to our Substack. As always, a reminder to please rate and review this podcast on iTunes and tell your friends. A big thanks to Paul, Neil Woodley for graphic design, Tom Hamilton and Tyler Bershey for creating our theme, the Crowleys for the music, and to all of you for listening. You can follow us wherever you find your podcasts. Next episode is February 24th. Until next time, keep adapting. <laughs>